Hi, you're about to get smarter in just a few minutes with Curiosity Daily from Discovery. I'm Cody Goff. And I'm Ashley Hamer. Today, world-renowned Stonehenge archaeologist Susan Greeney will help you learn about a mysterious new discovery around one of the best-known prehistoric monuments in the world. You'll also learn why females feel colder in many species. Let's satisfy some curiosity. There are some pretty mysterious places in the world, but one of the most mysterious has got to be Stonehenge. It's a ring of massive vertical stones topped by horizontal stones, all of which were carted in from hundreds of kilometers away and have been worked to fit together like wood joints. It's located in southern England, and it's as old as the pyramids of Giza. And we're not sure why it exists. But the mystery keeps getting weirder, as our guest today is about to explain. Susan Greeney is an archaeologist who works for English Heritage as a senior properties historian, where she's been researching the ancient structures of England for more than 16 years. She's also featured in a new documentary on Science Channel that debuts next week. Details on that in a few minutes. For our first question, we asked her what it's like to see Stonehenge in person. So many people probably think of the stones of Stonehenge, the lintels, the horizontal stones and the upright stones. That's what's in our minds, isn't it? But actually, when you get to Stonehenge, you realise there's a whole lot more than that. So it sits in a really big open landscape. It's in Wiltshire, which is a kind of undulating chalk countryside. And so you're kind of looking out across kind of really wide landscape when you're stood at Stonehenge. So the monument is kind of set within fields, um, within pasture and sheep. um, And it's actually much bigger than it looks as well. So most people, unfortunately, don't get to go inside the stone circle, but I'm quite lucky in that I do quite often. Um, and, and obviously we do allow people in on special tours and things. When you get up close to those stones and you have to crane your neck up, they're really, really tall. They're massive. It's like looking at a three-story building. So that, that kind of scale of it is quite hard to get across in the pictures that you'll see. Cool. And that first time you just like walks into Stonehenge, like can you describe that? The first time I visited was actually on a university field trip, um, probably 25 years ago now, so way back. And I think that experience of going in, it's like entering a room. It feels quite enclosed when you're inside the stone circle. So you you get this very different sense when you're in there. And it's a really small space as well. It's quite a small monument when you get in. So that's unfortunately why, uh, you know, English Heritage, who look after the site, can't let millions of people in there every year because it's it's just quite a small space and it's really fragile. The archaeology would get damaged quite quickly. So um, yeah, there's a sense of scale, there's a sense of kind of enclosedness and, and sort of uh, also the sense this is this is quite a small space, a quite intimate space. All right, well, let's let's move on to the most recent discovery at Stonehenge, which is pretty mind bending. Could you talk about like the, the pits that we've discovered? So this is a very new discovery. Um, the academic paper about it only came out last year. And this is the feature of this documentary that's, that's coming out. So it's a circuit of big pits. That's the best way to describe it. Slightly odd thing to get your head around. Um, So about a mile and a half away from Stonehenge, there's a site called Durrington Walls, which is a settlement where we think people were living at the time that Stonehenge was being built. So it's where the people were living in small houses and had feasting and celebrations and all kinds of things were going on. And that site sits, now we know, at the, the middle of this circuit of big shafts. And these are pits that are about five meters deep and about 10 meters across at the top. And they've probably eroded out a bit so they probably were less kind of wide at the top originally. And they're kind of in two sort of circuits or arcs 
and they enclose a huge, huge area about a mile across. So this new discovery is kind of mind-boggling because it's like, well, what are they doing digging these enormous great big pits in this big arc near Stonehenge? It's a really weird monument, if you can call it a monument. And it's not really like anything we've ever discovered before. So it's quite an exciting discovery, but it's also really confusing and a bit intriguing because we don't yet really understand everything about it. Yeah. Do, are there any theories for like what these pits even are or what they were used for? Well, we haven't yet excavated them. That's, that's the crucial thing. We need to get in there and we need to dig one. So, you know, this is a big task, which is why it's not been done yet. If we excavate it down to the bottom, we might find that there is offerings in the bottom of these pits. We might find that there are fires there. We might find burials. Who knows what's at the bottom of them? But there is a bit of a tradition in the Neolithic period, which is when Stonehenge is built, of digging deep and digging deep ditches, um, digging deep shafts and pits and wells. People were quite familiar with kind of going underground, as it were, and they were also quite interested in things like caves and sinkholes. So it's possible that people were kind of digging pits to make offerings to the underworld or the ground or the earth. They might have just been creating a big enclosure for some reason. There's, there's evidence that these big pits are actually linked together with little fence lines, so sort of smaller posts. So they're kind of creating a big enclosure around this other site of Darrington Walls. So that might be that they're trying to kind of separate off that bit of land as a kind of special place as well. Okay. And actually, we should specify too, because, you know, you talk about pits, you think about big holes in the ground, but the things that were actually discovered were, that was discovered with radar, right? Like these are actually filled in now. Exactly. You can't see anything above ground at all. They've been discovered using geophysical survey. So lots of different techniques, radar and resistivity and magnetometry are all the techniques, different different kind of methods of seeing what's underneath the ground, basically. And so, yeah, the, the arc was, was discovered using those techniques. And then they have taken cores. So basically drilling down very thin columns and extracting a whole kind of section through one or two of these sinkholes to see what they can find in terms of dating evidence and to see what the bottom, how deep they are and, and what the bottom looks like. So we've got that information, but obviously that's kind of like keyhole surgery. So you're not really seeing the full extent of what's down there. Is this just leading to even more questions about Stonehenge? Is, is that like just what this whole thing is? Just every time we go there, we're just like, ah, oh, there's more we, we don't really quite know. Yeah, like like all good archaeology, it always ends up with more questions than answers. But yeah, it, it's really interesting in the context of Stonehenge and its wider landscape, because we already knew that Stonehenge was part of what we call a monument complex, which is that there are lots of other things in that landscape. It's not just Stonehenge on its own. So you've got monuments that are much earlier than Stonehenge, and you've also got lots of round barrows, burial mounds that are later than Stonehenge. And now we've got this whole new monument, this big circuit of pits to add to the, to the mix. So it looks like this is a really significant area, particularly this this riverside, so that this circuit of pits is right next to the River Avon, which we know is important anyway, because they build an avenue, a kind of earthwork link between Stonehenge and the river. So the, the river and the river valley and this site at Durrington and this big, it, it's sort of almost like Stonehenge wasn't the main event. It's like the main event was over at Durrington. So yeah, that's quite interesting and kind of shifting our perspectives because to us, Stonehenge is obviously, you know, the most iconic and important bit. Move over, Stonehenge. You're not the most important ancient site around. Again, that was Susan Greeny, an archaeologist who's featured in the new documentary on Science Channel, Stonehenge, Land of the Dead. You can watch it this Sunday, November 28th, or watch it afterwards on Discovery+. Plus. You can find a link for a free trial of Discovery+, Plus in today's show notes, 
or visit discoveryplus.com slash curiosity. For decades, researchers have found that men are most comfortable at slightly lower temperatures than women on average. But it turns out that this doesn't just apply to humans. Biologists have spotted it in a lot of species. And according to new research, the reason might lie deep in our warm-blooded physiology. For humans, disagreement over the quote-unquote right temperature usually plays out as conflict over who controls the thermostat. But for most non-human animals, warming up or cooling off means moving to a different place. That might explain why the animal kingdom is chock-full of species that split up by sex outside of the breeding season. Take the alpine ibex, for example. Researchers have found that females typically stick to lower elevations where it's warmer, while males are nudged higher and higher as the day heats up. In Australia, male kangaroos are more likely than females to park it in the shade during the hottest part of the day. And on the island of Madagascar, female gray dwarf lemurs tend to huddle up in warmer spots while solitary males nest in cooler areas. What gives? Well, the truth is that researchers aren't sure. It could be that larger individuals with better insulated bodies can deal with cooler temps. In a lot of species, those are usually the males. Or maybe it isn't about temperature at all. Maybe higher latitudes are where the best resources are, so the faster, stronger males get there first. The researchers behind this new study have a different hypothesis. Maybe separation is the point. Keeping males and females separate most of the time might offer some evolutionary advantages, like reducing competition for food. It could also lower the risk of an aggressive male harming females or her babies. To know for sure, a few things would have to be true. Females would still have to prefer warmer temps in species where they're larger than the males, and temperatures would have to be the deciding factor, not something like altitude or latitude. To test their hypothesis, the researchers turned to birds and bats, two species where females are often larger than males. They searched archives for records of 31 species detailing where males and females had been spotted over the last 40 years. Sure enough, they found that male birds and bats tend to hang out in cooler spots while females spend time in warmer places. And yes, air temperature was the most important variable. It mattered a lot more than altitude, latitude, or body size. That supports the idea that the difference might lie in how males and females perceive temperature. It could be that 75 and sunny feels warmer to males than to females. So maybe we didn't evolve to fight over the thermostat. Instead, maybe evolution just wants us to take a break from each other for a while. Maybe evolution just wants us to do a quick recap of what we learned today. Starting with the fact that there's a brand new Stonehenge discovery. Archaeologists found a circuit of big pits that enclose an area about a mile across around Stonehenge. The pits aren't like anything we've found before, so researchers don't know why they're there or what they were used for. We might find offerings or fires or burials down in those pits, but first, we have to excavate them. And we also learned that Stonehenge is part of what's called a monument complex, meaning that there are a lot of other things around it, like burials and even other monuments. After archaeologists used radar, magnetometry, and other technology to find these circles, we learned that the complex might have been even more important than we thought. And Stonehenge itself may not have even been the main event. It just happens to be the last monument standing. I think Stonehenge is also an example of the magic of television 
and cameras and stuff like that. Cause I've been there and there's a road like down a hill, you know, like there's kind of a highway that bends around it. It reminds me of when you see a picture of the great pyramids in Egypt. Sometimes you can see a picture of literally like a McDonald's across <laughs> the street. That's like, you know, half a mile away. And, uh, you know, you don't see those in the promotional pictures or in all the, you know, guidebooks and travel guides. But it's funny the way that modern civilization encroaches on so many of these sites. Yeah. I mean, seeing this documentary, there's all this like drone footage of it from way up high. And you can see there's tons of farms around, like tons of people are growing food right next to Stonehenge. And that wasn't something I ever really considered. Right. Well, we all got to eat, right? Yeah. But this conversation was super cool. Right now, I'm kind of obsessed with the technology that archaeologists can use because whenever I think of archaeology, I think of digging things. And it turns out that digging can really mess with delicate ancient artifacts. So when you can use things like radar and magnetometry to just look underground and not touch it, that's way better. And you can probably get things in like way more detail without displacing anything at all. And I just think that's super cool. Very impressive. Also impressive is the other thing we learned, which is that humans aren't the only species where females prefer warmer temperatures than males. But since other warm-blooded species don't have thermostats, they settled the arguments by moving to different locations. And a new study suggests this is an evolutionary strategy to keep the sexes segregated, which can cut down on conflicts outside of the breeding season. One more reason for remote work, also. <laughs> I don't know. I, I work remotely in the same house as my husband, and we still fight over the thermostat. So. Oh, there you go. Okay. I do have a space heater, though. That really helps things. That's not, And you and I don't have to deal with each other's temperature preferences, although I don't remember that ever being an issue when we were actually in the same room. Yeah, well, also, I think we had very little control over the thermostat in any of our workplaces that we worked in, <laughs> right? right. <laughs> it was kind of, we had to just deal. Yeah. Oh, well, what can you do? The writer for today's female species story was Grant Curran. Our managing editor is Ashley Hamer, who is also an audio editor on today's episode. Our producer and lead audio editor is Cody Goff. Join us again tomorrow and we'll turn up the heat to help you learn something new in just a few minutes. And until then, stay curious. Stay curious.